Welcome to the Principal's Office Podcast, where we believe that the principal's job is the most interrupted job on the planet, and creating a clear and cohesive plan is the best way to improve your school. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Miller. I'm the founder of Leaders Building Leaders, and it's my goal each week to introduce you to new strategies and initiatives that are improving schools across the country. You're going to learn leadership principles that are going to help you accelerate your growth, build your teams, and execute on those goals so you can exceed those expectations of the communities that you aim to serve. If you want to learn more about what we do, you can go to our website at lbleaders.com. But for right now, enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome everybody. Tom Miller here. I am really, really excited about this session uh, because we have a true expert who's gonna join us in our weekly school leadership made real simple program. And, there, and, and you know, some of you have maybe uh, seen a little bit of the information of why you clicked yes to this session. And I'll just tell you, you know, quick story um, that I had, you know, shared. You know, I got this great call from this woman, Gabby. She says, hey, I, wanna, I want you to, I want you to meet you know someone. I think you should meet this person. You got a pretty good podcast, and we only have a podcast because of you all. You all do a great job, and thanks for listening. And and I love it. And and uh, we think you know we think we have you know something for you. So they, she sent me this book called the called the Good Boss, and I'm like, oh, all right, I'll read it. I'll try it. And I'll tell you what, it wasn't eight pages into the book that it already started to change my world. The way I looked at um, women as professionals. Um, and how, you know, our words matter. And I've got a 13-year-old daughter, and um, boy, do I want nothing more for her uh, to always, always be looked at as not only being equal um, in the workforce, but a leader in the workforce. So I was really excited that um, Gabby called me and asked me to read this book, and um, I'm really excited to introduce who I'm going to hopefully consider um, a, a colleague after this call because she's already mentoring me but she doesn't she doesn't know that yet uh remember you don't have to ask your mentors they can just mentor you they don't even know because you just want to pay attention it's a really smart uh people doing some great things so i want to introduce you all to kate eberly walker she's the ceo of presence learning which is the leading provider of online special education services for k-12 schools everybody and and in this role, she, she leads a majority female employee population whose mission is not just to serve all of our students with uh, learning needs, but to provide flexible career paths for more than 1,500 special education clinicians. And so, and, and many are working moms. And, and so some of you had maybe, you know, we had a session about you know, six to eight weeks ago with, with uh, members of her team. So Kate took her first CEO role at age 39 at the Princeton Review, and she offers a straight tell it like it is advice to all of our fellow managers and, and, and is an approachable and relatable mentor to younger women and men. So I'm, and, and, and so I'm, I'm just really excited to learn from her. So um, she's the author of this book, The Good Boss, and I'm gonna highly encourage you to pick this book up. And this is nine ways every manager and leader can support women in the workplace. And it shows nine simple rules for managers to follow to provide a better work environment for women. So I'm really excited for her to share some of these rules today, along with some insights from her, from her 20 plus years in the industry. And so, so Kate, welcome to the School Leadership Made Real Simple community. And uh, we're really excited to have uh, you as part of it. So thanks for giving us your time today. The floor is yours. 
Thank you. Thanks for the introduction and for having me. And thanks for, thanks for inviting me to join your community. I'm excited to talk with you today and hopefully, hopefully onward from here as well. Uh, so is it okay if I share your screen, Tom? We're gonna, you we're gonna it. do this. We're gonna do some, we're gonna have some lessons here. I love it. Um, cool. Okay, let me just do my Zoom thing. Do that. And we're good. Um, okay, cool. So Tom already gave the intro about me and my background. I've worked in the education world for a long time on the business side, running education companies. Um, and, and as Tom said, I, I became CEO of Princeton Review now about, ooh, it's about six years ago um, and, have, and have gone on to become the CEO of Presence Learning. And so I learned uh, once, once I was in charge and was in that CEO seat, I started spending time with other CEOs. And you know, of course, the majority of those leaders are men, um, over 95% of the CEOs in Fortune 500 are still men. So um, they, you know, they became my colleagues and started asking for advice. And they all wanted me to tell them how, what they should be doing to do a better job of leading the women on their team, recruiting women, retaining them, promoting them. What should I be doing? doing, you know, help me figure it out. And so I put this quote up here. Uh, I'm 100% in favor of supporting women in my company, but I'm not always sure what the right thing to do is. So that is definitely a recurring comment that I hear from male leaders. And so when I, when I was writing this book and thinking through the messages, um, you know, in my, in my day job at Presence Learning, I spend a lot of time talking to superintendents and other school leaders. Um, and again, the majority of superintendents are men, right? So, um, so I found that, you know, I was having a conversation with a superintendent who said, you know, you're like, this, this advice is not, is not just for companies. This is incredibly relevant to school organizations. And, um, you know, he, he read the book and said, you know, every, every school leader should read this too. Think about it. You've got, you've got large organizations. The majority of your employees are women, um, but you still have men dominating these leadership roles. So there's a, there's a gender gap there that we can all do more to address. And so, so I've started talking about these, these rules that, that Tom referred to that I have in the book um, with, with a lot of people who are working in and leading schools, um, which, which has been, you know, I think great to, to see, see schools engaging and thinking of themselves as, you know, how can, we, how can we be better managers? How can we be better employers and attract the, the best talent to our schools. Um, and so I wrote this book, you know, to really try to try to give an approachable, relatable answer to people saying things like this, I'm 100% in favor of supporting women, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. So I said, well, maybe, maybe I can break it down and tell you what the right thing to do is. Um, and so that's what I did in nine rules, nine chapters, and I'm going to put them up, put them all up here, uh, but we're going to, we're going to dive into a couple of them today. And by the way, happy for this to be very interactive. Um, if there are questions that, that you want to actually open up my chat here so that I can see questions as they come in. Um, so so, so the rules, I'm going to run through them quickly, and then we're going to dive in. So rule number one, 
call her by her name. Uh, respect starts with getting her name right. Number two, be someone she can relate to. Build authentic working relationships with the women on your team. Number three, don't ask, what does your husband do? That can be a very loaded question. Uh, and what I mean by that is avoid, avoid downgrading the ambition of women after marriage. Don't assume that she doesn't need to or want to work um, because, her, because she gets married or her economic situation changes. Rule number four, don't sit in her chair. Many women feel as essential at, sorry, make women feel as essential at work as they feel at home after having children. Number five, watch the clock. Be mindful of the time and schedule constraints that women are balancing. Uh, number six, speak up so that she doesn't have to. Take proactive action to stop bad behavior or uncomfortable comments in, in meetings or in the workplace. Number seven, don't make her ask twice. Uh, eliminate negotiation pitfalls that, uh, that women can encounter. Uh, it turns out there's a lot of data out there that people don't like it as much when women uh, negotiate for things. Number eight, be an equal opportunity. Uh, am I allowed to say, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this word on air, Tom, um, but be as tough on her as you are on everybody else. Uh, number nine, tell her that you see her potential. Envision a bigger future for her. So the, this is it laid out uh, in the book with a bunch of practical examples, starting with just you know stories. Here's, here's the real experience. Here's what women are experiencing in their day-to-day -day work. Um, and, then, and then turning that around and saying, and here's what you, if you're managing a woman, if you're hiring a woman, uh, if you're a leader of an organization with women in it, uh, here are the practical actionable things that you can do. So I wanted to spend uh, our, first, our first section here on the very first rule, rule number one, call her by her name. And uh, this is all about getting names right. And this is an interesting one because when, um, when I started writing the book, I thought like, well, this is pretty basic, but you know, it comes up a lot. Uh, it comes up for me, people. I was actually in a meeting yesterday where, with a bunch of lawyers and this lawyer kept calling me Katie. And my name is not Katie. It's Kate. And I had, you know, introduced myself as Kate. It actually, I was in a Zoom. So it literally said Kate um, in the, you know, in the corner. And I, you know, I corrected him once and he just kept doing it. And it was, um, you know, it was distracting. It was a little, a little offensive. Um, you know, it, it felt disrespectful that he wasn't taking the time or paying the attention to learn to learn my name as I had said it. And, you know, it turns out uh, this happens frequently and it happens disproportionately to, to women. Um, here, here are some quotes about names that uh, from women who I interviewed when I was writing the book. So I correct someone the first time they get my name wrong, but after a while, I just give up. I don't wanna be that person who's always correcting people. When my name is right there in the email and they still get it wrong, it shows a carelessness and lack of respect. And after I got married, I let people use whatever last name they wanted instead of speaking up about what I wanted. So these are some of the landmines with names. So uh, we start with the, the basic of the basic terms of endearment, um, not, you know, no sweetheart, honey. Um, young lady is one that, that I've gotten a few times. Um, appreciate that people think I look young, but you know, in, 
it, depending on the context, uh, it's not what you want to hear uh, in a meeting. And so, you know, this is when, again, you, you would think that, that it would be straightforward, but um, I, I have been in meetings, including with school leaders who, and I'll hear them refer to a woman on my team as, as, as sweetheart or dear or something like that. So it really does happen. Um, and it, it turns out that I thought this survey was was really interesting because um, more than I would have thought, 41% of managers said, said in a survey that they think it's okay to use terms of endearment at work, but 75% of women think that it's not acceptable. And 25% uh, of women have actually been, been frustrated about it to the point of anger. So I think it's one to, to watch out for and referring to my other role, speak up so she doesn't have to. I always, I feel like, you know, I try to be a great, great defender on this one. And if I hear someone saying it to someone else, I try to jump in and um, correct it, you know, diffuse it with humor sometimes, but, but I try to speak up about this one when I see it happening to others. Um, then we get to what I like to call the Janet Jackson rule, um, which is, you know, again, no terms of endearment, um, call her by her, you know, her name is introduced, but, you know, if you want to get into the realm of nicknames, calling a woman by the last name is actually not a bad way to go. It turns out that, um, Men, men much more often refer to each other in a collegial way by last name. Um, they're 50% more likely to be called by last name only at work. And there, there are a lot of examples where, uh, you know, it conveys respect to refer to someone by their last name instead of first name. And, and that is done in, in most of these examples more often um, for men than for women. So students are 56% more likely to refer to their male professors by last name. Um, political pundits, 126% as likely to refer to male politicians by their last names. And um, scientists identified only by their last names in a research study were actually considered more worthy of receiving an award. So um, there's a lot, a lot of respect that you can convey by referring to someone by last name. Um, and that tends to be something that, that men benefit from more than women. Then there's getting married and changing your name or not changing your name. Um, this, this was another one that was a big one for me. I, so as you can see, I use both my, my maiden name Everly and my married name Walker. And um, when I got married and decided to keep both names and use them that way, um, oh, I can't even tell you how how many comments I got. People, you know, everyone kind of had an opinion about it and some people would just sort of reject it and be like, oh, that's a mouthful. I'm just gonna call you Kate Walker. Um, or, you know, they they actually will always remember one uh, one colleague said to me, did you know that the divorce rate is higher for couples where the woman doesn't take her husband's last name? Um, and so, you know, people in the workplace even will, will comment and, um, and judge. And so women bring this up as a big source of um, not just frustration, but, um, you know, it, it, it makes them self-conscious. It, it's an awkward topic to, you know, to, to change your name, to tell somebody what you want to be called. And to have people kind of ignore it or undermine it or, or comment on it um, can can really be demoralizing in the workplace. And um, 
and you know there are these these perceptions that you know despite the fact that you know we know many many more women um, do keep their maiden name or or use both or use one in a professional context. You know, there's all kinds of permutations these days, but um, research does show that that people view women who don't take their husband's name um, as, you know, some good things, like more independent, more intelligent, more competent, but also as less caring. Um, so there's a there's a real double-edged sword here um, in, in the, the decisions that women make around naming. So in summary, this, this seemingly basic rule that turns out to have a lot of layers, here's, here's my checklist of what to keep in your head. Um, know her name, know how to spell it, know how to pronounce it. Um, I find people, as I've become more mindful of this over the years, I, you know, I, I start most conversations the first time I'm meeting someone just, just double checking, just asking, am I saying your name right? Um, people really, really appreciate that. Um, it goes a long way to show that you you care to to pay attention to that. Um, no terms of endearment. Uh, you know, don't don't shorten names or you know if someone introduces herself as Jennifer, don't assume she's a Jen. Right, those those sorts of things. Um, think about think about using that last name um, when referring to somebody professionally. And um, and correct others. This this is that speaking up piece that you know I I especially if I'm the leader or the senior person in the room to um, you know if if I hear somebody calls mispronounce or or call somebody else by a different variation of their name I I try to always jump jump in um, because it's something that women say can be hard can feel hard to do the second or third or fourth time that somebody gets it wrong you know there, it turns into this this self-consciousness burden that is put back on her um, of feeling like, you know, I don't want to, yeah, I already said something. I don't want to be a complainer. So, and, you know, anytime that you can, you can correct uh, on somebody's behalf, I think it's a great thing to do. Any, any thoughts or questions on this before I go to the next one? Yeah, go ahead and put your question in the chats, everybody, or raise your hand and we'll open up. I mean, Kate, you know, I, you know, I put a comment here, you know, because of my ignorance, you know, I would think that, you know, calling a woman by their last name would be more disrespectful, you know, because when I was a kid, you know, it was Miller. Everybody called me Miller. But mm -hmm. if there was a woman and I called her Miller, you know, I don't know. I, I, I you know, I think it's, it's just not the same, right? So, but then I would also struggle with the miss or the missus or, and I was like, oh gosh, I got everything wrong. So, I mean, it's just, there's sometimes you can just overthink it. Right, so I so I just love this this rule here, and just make sure you just get it right, uh, you know, the first time, and always remember that that's the that's the that's the sweetest sound to everybody is you know getting their name right. I mean, everybody yep. knows that. So it's big. It's big with students too, right? I mean, there's there's so much research out there about about how um, you know how alienating it could be for a student to be in a classroom where his or her teacher doesn't pronounce pronounce the name correctly. So yeah, it's true for everybody. Great. I don't see any questions, so go ahead. Keep all right. Going. I'm gonna this keep going. Great. So I'm jumping all the way to rule number five, uh, which is watch the clock. So this is about being aware of uh, the value of time and the the tensions of time for 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 everybody, um, especially these days when work and life tend to kind of blend together and you know intrude upon each other there's no longer that necessarily that clean 
weekday weekend, but um, but especially for women and especially for uh, working mothers, um, this this management of time and um, you know the challenge of of dealing with adjusting to last minute changes in schedules is is really hard. So here here were some of the comments around schedules and, and flexibility. So um, first is from a, from a male boss, the women who work for me often take a different approach to working hours. If you wanna work an hour from eight to 9 p.m. instead of five to six, more power to you. Uh, I'm starting to realize that the men just leave to go to something for their kids without apology. And uh, then husbands, at least mine, are reliable when you ask them in advance to do something, but they don't usually assume primary responsibility for childcare on their own. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's all about the, the workload of, um, the, of household work, uh, you know, as combined with, with professional work outside the homework, day job work. Um, and so here's, here's the numbers. I think, you know, we all, we all have seen um, stats and surveys and estimates like this, but you know, there, there is this kind of real uh, gender gap in how much time women spend outside of their regular working hours doing household work and, um, and you know, how much that grows and expands when you have children. So, uh, you know, you're looking at for, for a working mom, you know, spending over 40 hours per week doing household and child care work on top of her, you know, if she's working full time, it's, it's just literally like two full time jobs. So that's the tension that is created. And, and it is, you know, the data shows us it, it is more of a tension, more of a burden for working women than working men in terms of uh, bearing, bearing the brunt of that work at home. I remind my husband of that all the time. It is definitely true in our house as much as he, uh, you know, puts effort into contributing to the household work. There, there's like a default um, as a mom of a lot of hours of, of stuff that does fall to me. So I, I think of it as, as the house of cards. And the thing to remember about, about your colleagues, about people who, who work for you is that, you know, you might be changing one small thing in the day, you know, asking someone, can you stay an extra 15 minutes or something like that. But that, you know, working, working moms in particular are just very masterful at building these schedules that, um, you know, just don't really have any slack in them. So, you know, they're going to make everything happen. They're going to get, you know, she's going to get where she needs to get and get it done. But it's, it's, it's often going to be this combination of, you know, as long as I can, you know, drop off my daughter at daycare by 7.45 and there's no traffic, then I can stop and pick up the dry cleaning and get there by 8.30, right? Like it's, there's not a lot of room for error. And so, you know, I, I think about it when you, when you pull that card out, move that one thing a little bit, it can create that, that cascading effect that, that can be very, very stressful. And I think, um, that in a really big way is what happened during COVID when it was a lot more than just, you know, nudging schedules by 15 minutes, but when, um, you know, when school changed and childcare changed and, you know, ev everything was kind of coming together, there was, um, you know, really just this, this inability for some working moms, for many working moms to maintain that delicate balance. 
And that led to a lot of women leaving the workforce, right? And so, um, so you know, we saw throughout the pandemic and continuing that there, there just were there were many women who you know couldn't maintain that um, that house of cards and needed to take a step away from the workplace. And um, you know, I think that created a lot of um, a lot of stress, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, even when I interviewed women about how it felt, you know, there was um, for many just, you know, pressure got to be too much. And, you know, they, they knew that they needed to take a step back from working outside the home during COVID. But, you know, they still have these feelings like, what, what will people think of me? Who does that? Who ups and leaves their job? Uh, I worked really hard to get to this point. If I leave, will I be able to come back in at the same level? Um, you know, other people seem to be handling this. Why can't I handle it? So, you know, there, there were, you know, along with those departures from the workforce over the past couple of years, there were just some really, you know, really hard feelings about it. And what I think we all need to pay attention to on the way back in uh, is, you know, as many of these women are ready to come back into the workforce, uh, I think we all need to be really, really mindful of unconscious bias and, and make sure that we give them that opportunity to come back. So um, what, what these charts are here are showing, uh, you know, when, when, women apply for jobs um, they are you know, how are they how are they viewed if they're currently actively working in a job recently unemployed or had taken a more extended um, break from from the workforce for childcare, uh, which is called opt out on these charts and so you can see that the the views uh, the, the the views of these applicants who had had opted out for caregiving are really much more negative. I mean, you know, people view them view these women to be less committed, less capable, less deserving of the job, less reliable. And so there's this bias that women are coming back into that I think we all have to be careful about. You know, I, I have to check myself on this. I have had um, you know, I had a woman who worked in our company take a break um, because of caregiving during COVID. And when she reached out to me and said, you know, I'm ready to come back. I want to talk about uh, what opportunities there might be. The first thing I said to her was, are you sure you're ready? And then, you know, I, I kind of stopped myself and said, well, she just said she was. Like, we don't need to second guess, um, you know, these women. If someone's coming forward, applying for the job, uh, saying she's ready to come back, I, I definitely encourage you to take it at face value and not you know, sort of un undermine it with this this wonder, even if it's coming from you know trying to be thoughtful, trying trying to be be well intentioned. Um, you know, it can come across as as really second guessing. Is she committed? Is she gonna Is she gonna be reliable? Is she gonna be stable? And that's just you know a lot of assumption to to put on someone. And so so you know, there's a lot of talk now especially about how you know how can employers do you know do more to to have working mothers in particular feel supported um, and the answers when you when you survey women about this really have a lot to do with flexibility 
And so this, you know, I want, I want to get into this next topic section is really about, um, you know, there's, we've talked about this tension, the, the schedule tension, the schedule demands of women, um, for sure, something that, that what the majority of women say loud and clear is that flexibility in their work schedules um, is the best way to, to help them, you know, manage all of this. And so, um, you know, this is one survey where you've got all of these women when asked how how can you be supported in your job saying you know let me use my sick days when my kids are sick um let me let me have some flexibility in my hours to be home when my kids get home from school um allow you know allow me to go out for an event during the day things things like that are really all about flexibility um and you know i find th this one i just found so interesting and um you know i hadn't i hadn't seen these stats until recently and i thought well yeah i think that is true when women are asking for this flexibility it's actually just to be able to do more work right to be able to do that household work and to care for for their children and you know something that is becoming more of a topic that we could do you know i hope tom you do another bring in another expert to do a session on, on mental health and how we should all be thinking about that now i mean i think that there's a there's a tipping point on this as well and i think it's really notable that these women who are you know trying so hard to extract every hour they can for that for that caregiving are not taking care of themselves and um the number one thing that that women said in this survey of you know something that that um you know you didn't take you needed to take time but you didn't was um to go to the doctor for yourself to take care of yourself and i think that um that that self-care is um is a really big big thing and a big big looming question out there can, can we hold on that because because i think yeah. it's such a fascinating topic i mean being in education everybody works, well, I would say 99.9% .9 of the people work way too much, right? Mm -hmm. So I've caught myself lately when I find a teacher who's still here, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock, like, hey, what time are you going home, right? And, and now I'm just, you just got me thinking, like, am I being disrespectful in a sense of like, yeah, I want them to have some harmony, you know, but this might be their harmony too. So what's a good approach, you know, to that? to, you know, um, when you find that, you know, one, you know, worker or two that just, that just seemed like they never go home. Um, and because they may have some, you know, things happening at home, right. I don't know mm -hmm. about, right. Uh, right. And this might be a more peaceful situation for them, you know, working, but I also want to help them with their, um, not their time management, right. But their prioritization and all those paces. So what, so what, so what's a good way to approach that? I think, you know, and, and I, I have people like this too, where I think, you know, you can't, you, you can't, you can't, you don't want to dictate their time and their schedules for them, but you, you want to, I think, over, over communicate that, um, you know, you really want them to take that time for themselves. And I think it takes a lot of repeating. I have one person who, who works on my team, who's always working long hours. I mean, he's just a, he, he's a really hard worker and he has a really hard time stepping away when the work's not finished, but um, the work's never finished, right? And, that, and that's true for, for everyone working in education as well. And so, you know, for someone 
like that. I, I actually, you know, I, I push, I push the line on, you know, what would probably be badgering for other types of employees where, you know, anytime I, you know, I get an email late in the night, I, you know, my only response is you should stop working. You can, you didn't, you know, you don't have to do this now. You can send it tomorrow. I try to really, um, really push it to make it clear that like, you know, this, you, this can wait. It might not feel like it can wait, but it can wait. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, so a big, a big topic within the idea of flexibility and flexibility of hours is remote work. Um, and you know, remote work is certainly having its day in the sun. Uh, during during the pandemic, um, general reports were that two thirds of all workers in the U.S. were working remotely, or, or sorry, that were working remotely would like to continue to do so. Um, and I think you know, remote work has become very very popular, and I think you know demanded, maybe expected in a lot of parts of the workforce now. And there's a lot of reasons for that that um, that makes sense. I mean, you know, you really save time when you don't have to commute. You save time and save money when you don't have to commute. Um, you get to spend more time with your family. You get to you get to weave more flexibility into your day when you're working from home. Um, for some, it's about being able to work work from wherever you are. I remember, um, I remember a moment I was, uh, I was talking with a school leader who was gathering his, his teachers back for a meeting. This was back when schools were fully closed. And um, one, one of his you know, tried and true teachers didn't show up. And, it was, um, and he, he calls on his cell phone and is like, well, where are you coming in? And the guy's like, oh, I'm in Colorado skiing. Uh, I've been staying at my, at my parents' house. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't want to come back. So there, there are those kind of examples, too, especially among the younger part of the workforce of, um, you know, they found that there were these really enjoyable ways to uh, live somewhere different from, from where your work was and, you know, have it all uh, for, for some people. Didn't feel like having it at all for many, I know. Um, but so again, for women, for working moms, um, remote work has always been viewed as very valuable um, because it does allow you to work in more of this balance. And 71% of working moms say that flexibility, including the ability to work remotely, is a key factor in deciding to return to work after having children. Um, and for those who don't return, 80% say they would have if they could have worked remotely. So this, you know, th this got a lot bigger uh, during the pandemic and it came to places like schools where it had been, you know, in a really, really small, small corner of, um, of K-12 education was, was involved online online learning, online working, right? And then of course it expanded to everyone. And I think that it's, um, it's a really challenging dynamic right now that, that I imagine many of you have, have experiences with, and, and we're seeing it in, you know, on our side in our company as well, this, you know, what, what happens to, uh, you know, to that, that staff dynamic at a school when you have people that decide, you know what, I really, I really liked working remotely. I, I don't wanna come back to the building. Um, 
And, and that's something that I'm gonna do a little detour into. I haven't talked a lot about presence learning about my current company, but it's actually very relevant here to this idea of, you know, how, you know, when people want remote work, when people are valuing that flexibility, how can you try to turn that into a solution for schools where I think the first reaction can often be that, um, you know, it, remote work doesn't really work for schools, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of need and it's true, there's a lot of need to be in the building. Um, but what, what we've been able to do in the, in the area of special education related services is say, you know, back 12 years ago when Presence Learning was founded, it's really on this idea of, you know what, there, there aren't enough speech pathologists. So the first area the company addressed was speech therapy. And, and the founders of the company said, you know, there aren't enough speech pathologists to cover all of the services that are needed to deliver special ed related services. Um, there just aren't enough. And a big part of the reason why is that these SLPs go to work in schools for some number of years, but those are uh, very demanding jobs, involve a lot of you know, coverage of multiple schools, school locations within a district. And um, SLPs are, are women, mostly over 95% of SLPs are women. And so, you know, you start out young working in a school, but when you get to that point, maybe when you have your own children and you start valuing flexibility, start getting more interested in remote work, what's happening is a lot of these SLPs were, were leaving school services completely and they were, you know, going into private practice, going to work at clinics, going to other parts of the profession. So in Presence Learning, we said, well, what if there were a way for them to keep working with these kids who, you know, they love to work with and who, and who need them, um, but to give them that flexibility of remote work. And so, so that was really the origin of the company was about, um, you know, coming up with a, a workforce solution that would retain more SLPs doing work for schools um, and, you know, get these kids the services. And so that's, that's grown over the years. Um, I, I won't turn this into a full on, uh, you know, session on presence learning, but, you know, I did want to say it really, it, it came from this philosophy of, you know, first with speech pathologists, then with occupational therapists, then with school psychologists and, and counselors and social workers, you know, continuing with that idea of like, well, would you, would you stay in school services? Would you keep serving these kids if you could do so from home? And um, it's, it's grown to be, uh, you know, a really, really big team. We've, we've got, uh, we've got almost 2000 um, clinicians and employees across the company now. Um, the majority of of our clinicians are women. We hired over a thousand women during COVID. You know, we had a lot of um, a lot of clinicians, therapists who were working on site in schools, and you know, came over to to try teletherapy um, during the pandemic, and and liked it, and liked working remotely, and and have stayed on and continued to work in this way. And um, we do see that that a significant portion of our clinicians are working moms, 80% of them. So, you know, I think there's really something to this of, you know, more women, women, especially working moms want remote work and um, more of them will work, will stay in, in the, in the workforce. If you, you know, get, get creative and figure out ways that ways they can keep doing the work they want to do, but have that flexibility. 
There was a question from uh, Facebook. Is it okay if we dress yeah. like Kate or you want to? Um, so Carol asked, what if the woman has a PhD prior to marriage? How can she change her name after marriage except to add a name? So I don't know if you had any thoughts around that. Uh, well, I think most... I think most women with a PhD probably probably don't change their name for that reason, right? And I think that's, um, you know, I, I think that what what I advocate for is is you know go with the name that you want to have, and if you you know if you identify with and you want people to identify you by by your pre-marriage name. Um, stick with it. And I think, you know, getting a PhD is, is one big reason why, why people want to do it and they want to keep their name. Yeah. And I think just us as a world, we just need to get over it. Right. So just yeah. let people do what they want. Totally. <laughs> totally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, so to wrap up rule number five, um, which was watch the clock. Uh, so, you know, be mindful of time. Uh, don't don't push the edges of the workday without you know recognizing the impact that might have on all of the the other work happening outside of the workday. Um, give advance notice for changes, and you know just in general be be understand that time is valuable, and um, and that it it matters to to use it or change it, um, and you know look for opportunities to give flexibility, and you know that might. That might not be 100% remote roles, but if there's, you know, a way to, you know, if there's always, you know, an afternoon's worth of, of paperwork or office work, uh, you know, allowing for that to happen at home, if, if that's, you know, one, one way to give a, you know, giving someone a work from home day or a work from home half day, that can go a long way. People just really, I think, are increasingly valuing um, that that flexibility and that ability to to do more work from home. Yeah, I love it. Great. So, any more thoughts or questions on this one before I jump to one more? Do we have time for one more? Yeah, sure. Go for it. Yeah. Folks love it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to jump to my, my rule number seven, which is don't make her ask twice. So this is about uh, negotiation. Often that can be about negotiation of, of pay or salaries, but it's really, it's really bigger than that, broader than that. It's about, um, you know, what, what, what happens when women self-advocate or when women ask for things um, and, you know, being aware of the, the different ways that people react to, to men versus women when, when they ask. Um, and so here, here's some, some quotes, some anecdotes. When I asked for more money, they pulled the job offer. When I asked, he got angry. He said, I can't believe you would have the nerve to ask for this. And, um, I, this last one, I like. I spend a lot of extra time writing emails, rereading them, and editing them carefully to make sure I ask in exactly the right way. So I like that example because again, it's getting to. It's not always about like a big, big ask, like asking for a raise, although that certainly comes into play too. Um, it's really asking for anything, um, advocating. There's um, there's a tendency to react more negatively to to women or to, to you know view them as as aggressive versus assertive um, when, when they make these asks. So I, I liked this, this cartoon that I put up here, which I think explains it well. It's just that, you know, women have to do a bit more work 
when they're asking. They can't just like cut to the chase and say help. Uh, they have to say, excuse me, I'm terribly sorry to bother you, but would you mind? Um, you know, there's a lot more um, couching language, which, um, which here's, here's some examples of that. Um, permission words, exclamation points, these ways that women are expected to, you know, soften their language, soften the ask. Um, I, I'm definitely guilty of this. I actually, ha now that I've read the research about um, the, the, you know, rampant overuse of exclamation points by, by women in written communications, um, I, I go back now and read my emails before I click send. And I, I, have, I always have to delete an exclamation point or two. It, it's just become this, this thing that I've built into my professional communications that um, I think is for exactly this reason. It's to, it's to soften a point. You know, if I'm, if I'm making a direct statement, make it a little friendlier with an exclamation point. And so um, it turns out that, that women do this so much more often um, that when, when an analysis was done of, of a bunch of written communication, um, nearly three quarters of all of the exclamation points used by, by the data group were used by women. So um, these are things that you know, I point out because I think, I, I think it's something to be aware of as the, as the recipient, as, as, the, you know, as the participant in those conversations, as the reader of those emails. Um, you know, when women don't do this, they, you know, they, can be, they, they can be coached to you know, be friendlier, try, try to find a friendlier tone. Um, you know, try to be more warm in the way that you ask. And so it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, a catch 22 where it takes, takes a lot more time and work and words to always be couching and softening um, the things that you're asking for. But there is, there is a penalty on the other hand, if, if you don't do it. So I think, you know, I, I raise it so that if, if everyone's a bit more aware of that and tries, tries not to, uh, you know, hold it against someone who, who doesn't take the extra time to add the, you know, if you don't mind, I was wondering, um, you know, kind of clauses, then, you know, I think we can aspire to make things more efficient for everybody. And then, and then there's, you know, the, some more of the data about sort of these reactions of, of what women are up against. So, you know, if you, if she does go in to ask for a raise or to ask for a higher, a higher salary number when getting a job offer, um, women are more reluctant to do this, probably because of all of these dynamics. Uh, so men are 1.7 times more likely to ask for more money. And when they do, they're actually three times more likely to be successful. And, and that has to do with some of these negative reactions, um, uh, you know, studies showing that, that women who do ask for more or do negotiate are seen to be more demanding, less nice, even less competent. So there, you kind of can stick women in this corner where, um, you know, you know, if you don't, if you don't advocate for yourself, who will? But if you push too hard or aren't careful about the way you ask or the way you say it, um, you know, that that can that can penalize you as well. Hey, Kate, and and I think one of the things you did amazingly in the book because at first. I was pretty offended by most of it, right? Because I'm like, oh, I do all these things. This is bad. <laughs> then you made a really great point. It's like, no, this isn't just men doing this to women. This is also women doing this mm -hmm. to women as well. And I think that was probably my largest takeaway is that, you know, this, we're all having these, yeah. um, you know, challenges and we need to uh, 
look in the mirror first, right? And, and you know, really take these rules and, and say, where does that show up in my world, right? You know, what yeah. role do I maybe have in some of these problems? I, I think that's how I took your book and started to really look at myself and just, just be a, a lot more observational thinking about how maybe I'm coming across. So I greatly appreciate uh, how you use that in the book. Because at first, I'll be very honest, I was like, oh, no. It's like this is... <laughs> so... Yeah, and it, and it is. It's the these these assumptions, the you know the unconscious bias. It's it it really is universal. Yeah, these these you know all all of these you know the, that earlier example of um, you know people questioning whether a woman who's opted out of the workplace is you know deserving of the job when she comes back. Those are I mean the, those are you know that that's the perception across genders. That's that's women women doing that to women, men men doing that as well. So it really all of this stuff is is just there's a lot of I mean a lot of uh deep deep rooted uh you know assumptions about about gender that we all you know don't always realize. So I'll wrap up on this on this one, and then uh, and then in general wrap up, and we can we can do some more questions uh, if there are any. So, so rule number seven: don't make your ass twice. Um, so you know, ex expect that, and I'd say allow for women to advocate for themselves. Um, you know, knowing that it's hard, that that it's harder, and you know, she may have had to work work herself up to make the ask. Definitely give a clear answer when she asks for something, um, even if it's a no. It's better than leaving her to have to ask again. Um, you know, be really careful about not certainly not pulling an offer or you know not not penalizing for um, for negotiation. Um, you know, either by pulling back from making an offer or this this number four here. Trust that if she accepts your final offer, she's a hundred percent on board. That's that's that was another thing that came out in the interviewing that I was doing of some bosses saying like, well, if she asks for a raise and I can't give it, now I think she's unhappy, and you know she's probably not going to stay in the role. Um, and again, that's like assumptions. I mean, if, if you all have one takeaway, it's don't, don't put assumptions on other people, right? Um, you know, just trust that if she, if she stayed, you know, if she asked for a raise and you have to say no, if you don't have the money for the raise, trust that if she stays, it's because she, you know, she wants to stay and she wants the job. And then um, I, I like number five, um, you know, making your, making your best offer, being proactive. Um, if it's time for her to have a raise, don't, don't wait for her to ask for it. Um, you know, put, put it through and, you know, help, help avoid some of these dynamics of, um, you know, putting, putting her in the situation of having to, having to make that difficult to ask. So, that's that's it. That's a sampling. So we went deeper on three of the nine rules, uh, and you know appreciate appreciate everybody listening and engaging in this. Um, and you know, of course, would would love to continue the dialogue. If anyone has has read the book or is interested in picking it up, I um, am always happy to to dive into it. There's a lot of um, a lot of nuance to to some of these. It's all about human interactions, and human interactions are always complicated and nuanced so um, I always find it interesting to have a chat about about any of the rules in the book. I really love that you just shared it is a human piece right and we use the DISC personality profile to do a lot of that work and help understand and I and when you were first talking about the names piece 
I was a high eye, right? So just a very kind of, you know, spontaneous all over the place. And I had a lot of errors in terms of how I spelled people's names and all those pieces. And I look back now, it's like, wow, I had no idea the impact of my personality was, you know, coming out and all those, right? So a lot of that is, it's just, it's just looking in the mirror, everybody. And so, so look, go get the book. You can find it on Amazon. It's called The Good Boss, right? Or you can just search Kate Everly Walker, E-B-E-R-L-E Walker. Uh, you can find her on LinkedIn, right? They're going to search Everly Walker on LinkedIn, at Everly Walker on Twitter, and then also on Instagram, CEO Author Mom, all one word, CEO Author Mom. And then, and then if you're a school leader and in school leadership, which pretty much everybody who, who is listening is, and you have needs, I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the nation's largest or the world's largest? I can't remember. It's the, it's the global leader in teletherapy, right, is uh, presence learning. We, well, yeah, I guess I, well, we're definitely the leader in the U.S. We serve, we serve U.S. schools. I don't know. Maybe we're the biggest in the world. I'm going to say you're the biggest in the world, Okay, How about that? It's the global <laughs> leader of teletherapy for students with disabilities and all sorts related services. And uh, I'll go back and I'll make sure that I put the link in uh, to where the members of your team also shared some of the services. Uh, so if someone's out there listening, I'll make sure I put the link to Presence Learning uh, here in the show notes. Um, so wherever you're listening, so you can have an opportunity and uh, support uh, you know, the impact that Kate, Kate and her team are doing. So again, go get the good boss. Um, Kate, I appreciate you giving us an hour of your time today. And, uh, and, and, and I, you, you changed my world and you'll, you'll uh, continue to, cause I'm going to revisit this book and I would highly encourage, you know, others, if you got leadership teams, you know, grab three or four and do a mastermind around it, or you can, I'm sure you, sure uh, you can follow Kate and you can continue to learn and talk about her daily thoughts and the rules that she's uh, putting out there. And you're going to be better leaders for it. I promise you uh, with that. So, uh, so Kate, any last words before we send off for the day? Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to have the conversation. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll leave you all with one last fun thing. If you, if you have people you've worked with who you think really need to read the book, um, but might not you know, be so self-aware about it, I actually started doing this thing. You can find it on my website where um, I'll send a book anonymously to a boss or a person who you think needs to, needs to read it, which is, which is kind of a fun way if it's you know, a tough conversation to, to broach directly. So, um, so I'll, I'll leave you all with that idea if that, if that fits anyone you know in your world. Oh my gosh. Well, my uh, teammates on here, Lauren Waters and Lauren, I already have the book. So you don't, you don't, you don't need to call Kate and send it. You just need to say, Hey Tom, rule four, right? Or rule six or whatever. <laughs> and you can be my accountability partner there. Well, Kate, thanks so much. And again, go out, get the book, go to her website, kateeberlywalker.com. So K-A-T-E-E-B-E-R-L-E-W-A-L-K-E-R.com. If you're listening on the podcast, kateeberlywalker.com. Thanks again, Kate. Thanks for all Thank your impact you. and, and, and more success. Keep uh, making a difference out there and uh, have a great day. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Hey, podcast listeners. There's one thing I know for sure. It's everything rises and falls with leadership. And one of the challenges right now is time. We don't have a lot of time to, to grow ourselves and grow our teams. That's why we created the leadership program, School Leadership Made Real Simple. In the School Leadership Made Real Simple program, it's online, on-demand learning lessons that are built for the everyday principal, teacher leader, school administrator, and they're going to take your team 
to the next level. So go right now, go to schoolleadershipmaderealsimple.com and find out how you can start to build uh, groups of vision carriers and vision casters into every corridor of your school by developing the leaders around you. Go there now, schoolleadershipmaderealsimple.com. We've got great opportunities for you to get discounts on your team's leadership uh, development today. Thanks.